Hi, this is Justin Hibbert, and you're listening to Why Catholic, my podcast about the what and why of Catholicism. In case you're new to this podcast, I spent 39 years in various Protestant circles. I was a Baptist slash evangelical pastor for 11 years and the co-founder of a ministry called Christianity is Jewish. And at the age of 39, I came home to the Catholic Church. If you've been following along with this podcast, you know that we are talking about the sacraments, and today we're going to begin a mini-series on the Sacrament of Confirmation. Just as a review, the historical Christian churches, which includes the Catholic Church, confesses that there are seven sacraments, which can be divided into three categories. The sacraments of initiation include baptism, confirmation, and the Eucharist. The sacraments of healing are reconciliation and the anointing of the sick. And the sacraments of service are marriage and holy orders. Today we're going to talk about confirmation, and like we did with the Eucharist and baptism, we're going to begin by looking at the Jewish roots of confirmation. You may recognize a pattern here. Christianity has Jewish roots, and I think it's really helpful for us to explore the context of our Christian practices. Now, in order to discuss the Jewish roots of confirmation, we need to talk about two things in particular, anointing of oil, and secondly, the Holy Spirit. Let's start with the anointing of oil. In the Old Testament, the act of anointing with oil was a sign of conferring special authority and rights onto someone. We see this in particular with people who held two offices in Jewish society, priests and kings. In Exodus 29.7, we find the first instructions of conferring the priestly authority through the anointing of oil. Regarding the anointing of the first high priest, Aaron, it says, quote, You shall take the anointing oil and pour it on his head and anoint him, end quote. In anointing the priest with oil, Israel was setting apart the individual and conferring spiritual leadership and authority onto him. The person was supposed to help the Jewish people in their relationship with God. He would intercede on their behalf, offer sacrifices to atone for sins, and help steer the people towards their creator and redeemer. It was similar with Israel's kings, which would come quite a bit later after they had settled in the promised land. 1 Samuel 10 shows us that beginning with Israel's first king, Saul, we see a similar practice. The king was anointed with oil. In anointing the king with oil, Israel was setting apart the individual and conferring political leadership and authority onto him. That person was charged with providing for the general welfare of the Jewish people, exercising diplomacy in order to maintain peace and prosperity, and defending the nation from domestic and foreign attacks. The oil was sacramental in nature. The conferment of authority passed through that oil. It was more than a symbolic ritual. We can draw this conclusion from 1 Samuel 16, where the prophet Samuel anointed David as king. A couple of things to note here. Saul was still king at the time of David's anointing, and it appears that this anointing was rather a private affair. It's likely that Perhaps only David's family was present when Samuel anointed him. So if the oil was merely meant as a symbol, then it would be rather a useless one in the case of David, as very few people would have known about it. Instead, it's important to see the oil as a seal. In the oil, God and the Jewish nation were stamping their authority on David, similar to how an emperor would seal a letter with his ring or how a rancher would brand their cattle. The oil brought with it 
continuity. There was a special ritual for consecrating oil, and newly consecrated oil was added in a container with oil that had already been consecrated. That oil symbolized that continuity. It's possible that the oil used in one's consecration was a combination of newly consecrated molecules of oil, as well as molecules that had been consecrated long ago. Like I've mentioned throughout these episodes on the sacraments, Jewish liturgy bent time and space and united the past with the present. In being anointed with oil, the kings and priests of Israel became contemporaries, even though they were separated by hundreds of years. The sacramental and mystical element of oil allowed them to enter into that single story. We see something else take place when David's head was anointed with oil. 1 Samuel 16.13 says, quote, So Samuel took the horn of oil and anointed him in the presence of his brothers, and from that day on the Spirit of the Lord came powerfully upon David. End quote. The oil, in some mysterious and mystical way, brought the Spirit of the Lord, or the Holy Spirit, to rest upon David. This brings us to an important question. What, or better said, who is the Spirit of the Lord or the Holy Spirit? The Hebrew word for spirit is ruha, and the Greek word for spirit is pneuma. Pneuma and its Hebrew equivalent, ruha, can also be translated as breath or wind. For example, Genesis 1 states, quote, In the beginning, when God created the heavens and the earth, the earth was a formless void, and darkness covered the face of the deep, while a wind, or ruah in Hebrew, or pneuma in Greek, or in some English translations, it says, A spirit from God swept over the face of the waters, end quote. What does wind do? Wind moves objects in a specific direction, and this is exactly what the Holy Spirit does. He moves people in the direction he wants them to go. Throughout the Old Testament, we see the Holy Spirit empowering an individual at a specific time for a specific reason. The individual leader needed something at a specific moment or for a prolonged season, and the Holy Spirit came upon that individual and empowered them. We can say that the ultimate reason the Holy Spirit empowered someone was to move them towards doing God's will. Now, in order to better understand the Holy Spirit, especially the fulfillment that we find in the New Testament, I want to take you to another story, the story of the giving of the law on Mount Sinai. Now, let me paint this picture for you. The Hebrews had escaped Egypt. They had crossed the Red Sea where the Egyptians had drowned, and eventually they landed at the base of Mount Sinai some seven weeks or so after leaving Egypt. At Mount Sinai, God called Moses to meet with him on top of the mountain. Moses left the Hebrews in the camp below the mountain, climbed Mount Sinai, and was gone for 40 days. While Moses was gone, the Hebrews started getting restless. They had no idea where Moses went. In a time of anxiousness and uncertainty, they convinced Moses' brother Aaron to help them make a golden calf to worship. Now, it's really easy to get critical of the Hebrews here. God had rescued them from slavery. He had led them through the Red Sea. He had appeared as a miraculous cloud. And suddenly, the response is to make a golden calf and worship it? That seems incredibly short-sighted and ungrateful. But try and put yourself in their shoes. The Hebrews had spent some 300 to 400 years as slaves in Egypt, a, a land full of idols. We have no record that they had an understanding of the God of their patriarchs, Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, and Joseph. Furthermore, their leader Moses was likely a stranger to most of them. He was raised by Pharaoh's daughter. At the age of 40, he killed an Egyptian, and then he ran away in the wilderness for 40 years. He returned to Egypt at the age of 80 on a sudden quest to lead the Hebrews to freedom. 
How many people remembered Moses, the long-lost runaway? He had been gone for 40 long years. On that mountain, they probably thought maybe he was gone again. Maybe this was his M.O. He's there one minute and then just disappears for years. It's likely many thought they weren't going to see Moses again. So Aaron did what the people asked. He created a golden calf and said, Behold your gods who brought you out of Egypt. In other words, they were attributing the mighty works of God to a calf made of gold, and they started worshiping it. Meanwhile, for 40 days, Moses was having this holy moment on top of Mount Sinai where God inscribed the law on a stone tablet with his finger. After the 40 days were over, Moses came down the mountain and saw the Hebrews worshiping a golden calf. He got so angry, he threw the stone tablets down and they broke in half. It's easy to get critical of Moses here. Couldn't he have controlled his temper? Couldn't he have done something more productive than breaking the very stone tablets etched with God's law by God's own hand? But put yourself in Moses' shoes for a second. He had just had this authentic spiritual encounter with God. He watched God write a law on stone tablets. What was the first law? You shall have no other gods before me. And Moses came down from that spiritual high only to see his people breaking the very first law. I, for one, can understand Moses' anger and his frustration. From that day on, God promised that one day he would write the law not on stone tablets, but in his people's hearts. Listen to this prophecy in Jeremiah 31, 33-34, quote, The days are surely coming, says the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and the house of Judah. It will not be like the covenant that I made with their ancestors when I took them by the hand to bring them out of the land of Egypt, a covenant that they broke, though I was their husband, says the Lord. But this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days, says the Lord. I will put my law within them. I will write it on their hearts, and I will be their God, and they will be my people. No longer shall they teach one another or say to each other, Know the Lord, for they shall all know me from the least of them to the greatest, says the Lord, for I will forgive their iniquity and remember their sin no more. End quote. Going back to the story of Mount Sinai, after Moses' outburst, he then drew a line in the sand and told anyone who was with him to come on his side of the line and anyone who was against him to go to the other. He then told his men on his side to draw their swords and go through the other side and slaughter those opposed to him. That day, 3,000 people were killed. This moment in history is commemorated as the Festival of Shavuot, or sometimes known as the Feast of Weeks or probably better known as Pentecost. Pente means 50 as it occurs 50 days or seven weeks after Passover. It is the day when Israel celebrates God giving Moses the law on Mount Sinai. It's also worth noting that of Israel's seven Levitical feasts, three of them, Sukkot, which is the Feast of Tabernacles, Passover, and Shavuot or Pentecost, are pilgrimage feasts. Jewish people were supposed to return back to Jerusalem for the celebration of these three feasts. So let me fast forward 1,500 years or so to just after Jesus' crucifixion, resurrection, and ascension into heaven. Remember, his crucifixion occurred on Passover when lots of Jewish people from abroad came to celebrate the pilgrimage feast in Jerusalem. So likely many had seen what had happened or at least had heard about it. After Jesus' resurrection, he stayed with his disciples 40 more days before ascending into heaven. 
In Acts 1, 4 through 5, we read that Jesus gave his disciples specific instructions, quote, while staying with them, he ordered them not to leave Jerusalem, but to wait there for the promise of the Father. This, he said, is what you have heard from me, for John baptized with water, but you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit not many days from now, end quote. If we count 40 days after Passover to Jesus' ascension, and then we count another 10 more days or so, we get to Pentecost, which we read about in Acts chapter 2, starting in verse 1. It says, quote, When the day of Pentecost had come, they were all together in one place, and suddenly from heaven there came a sound like the rush of a violent wind, and it filled the entire house where they were sitting. Divided tons as of fire appeared among them, and a ton rested on each of them. All of them were filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak in other languages as the Spirit gave them ability. Now, there were devout Jews from every nation under heaven living in Jerusalem, and at the sound the crowd gathered and was bewildered, because each one heard them speaking in the native language of each. Amazed and astonished, they asked, Are not all these who are speaking Galileans? And how is it that we hear each of us in our own language? Parthians, Medes, Elamites, and residents of Mesopotamia, Judea, and Cappadocia, Pontus, and Asia, Phrygia, and Pamphylia, Egypt, and other parts of Libya, belonging to Cyrene, and visitors from Rome, both Jews and proselytes, Cretans and Arabs. In our own languages, we hear them speaking about God's deeds of power. All were amazed and perplexed, saying to one another, What does this mean? But others sneered and said, They are filled with new wine. End quote. So the disciples did exactly what Jesus had asked. They stayed in Jerusalem and just waited. Meanwhile, the Jewish Feast of Pentecost occurred, bringing with it an influx of Jews from all around the Middle East and Europe. Suddenly, the promised Holy Spirit arrived in the form of rushing wind and tons of fire, and the disciples began preaching. They understood the disciples, but some thought they were drunk. Peter then stood up and gave the sermon of his life. He explained the life and death of Jesus. Mind you, many of them likely were there at the time Jesus was crucified because that occurred on Passover, which was also a pilgrimage feast. Now listen to their response to Peter's sermon. Acts 2.37 says, quote, Now when they heard this, they were cut to the heart and said to Peter and to the other apostles, Brothers, what should we do? Peter said to them, Repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ, so that your sins may be forgiven, and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. For the promise is for you, for your children, and for all who are far away, everyone whom the Lord our God calls to him. And he testified with many other arguments and exhorted them, saying, Save yourselves from this corrupt generation. End quote. Now listen carefully to what happened next. Verse 41 states, quote, So those who welcomed his message were baptized, and that day about 3,000 persons were added. End quote. At the first Pentecost at Mount Sinai, how many people were killed for their idolatry and rebellion? 3,000. At the Pentecost just following Jesus' death, resurrection, and ascension, how many were saved by their faith and obedience? 3,000. The giving of the law on Mount Sinai on Pentecost is considered the birthday of the Jewish religion. The giving of the Holy Spirit in Jerusalem on Pentecost is considered the birthday of the Christian church. On that Pentecost came the fulfillment of the long-awaited prophecy that God was going to write his law on his people's hearts. 
Later in the book of Acts, we see people believe in Jesus. They are baptized, and then the apostles laid hands on the new believers, and they receive the Holy Spirit. And this practice continues today with the sacraments of baptism in water, and then the anointing of oil and the conferring of the Holy Spirit, which is completed in the sacrament of confirmation. In the next episode, we'll talk about the different practices across Catholicism in regards to when the Sacrament of Confirmation is performed. But for now, let me leave you with this thought. In Peter's first papal encyclical, which we better know as the Epistle of First Peter, he gives us Christians a unique title. Listen to what chapter 2 verse 9 says, quote, But you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, God's own people, in order that you may proclaim the mighty acts of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light, end quote. We are a royal priesthood. Yes, we are kings and priests. How were kings and priests anointed in Jewish society? They were anointed with oil by someone in authority. In doing so, the authority and rights were conferred upon the individual, and the Holy Spirit descended on that individual and empowered them. In confirmation, we are anointed with oil by the unbroken apostolic succession of the Catholic Church. And we step into the awesome role and responsibility of a royal priesthood. Yes, Even as lay people, we become, in a sense, kings and priests. The power of God and the authority of Christ's kingdom is conferred to us in order to empower us to proclaim the mighty acts of Jesus, our Messiah. Let me offer a sincere thank you for joining me for Why Catholic today. Be sure to subscribe to Why Catholic wherever you get your podcasts. And you can also subscribe to my Substack site and get the next episode and other pertinent information right in your email inbox. Go to whycatholic.substack.com slash subscribe to get started. If you have been blessed by this podcast, would you consider supporting it by being a monthly contributor? It's the cost of a cup of coffee, and it goes a long way into covering my costs for running this podcast. Even if you cannot give monetarily, you would be doing me a huge favor by going on your podcast platform and giving this podcast a five-star rating and even writing a short review. Thank you for being a supporter of this podcast, and thank you for tuning in to another episode. My name is Justin Hibbard, and this is Why Catholic.